0: So, Romans, we're back to Romans. It is good, I think, to finish a study in Romans in chapters 5 through 8. Why do I say that? Because these chapters, they're not only the high point of the letter, but they're the solution to the struggles that were happening in the house churches of Rome between the weak and the strong. And we're reading against the grain of Paul's letter, not because I think it's way Paul wrote it was wrong, no, 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 but because if we read 5 through 8 and the rest of it, after we've read 12 through 16, we get really what happens in the context of the letter, and we begin to ask, who's in his mind as he writes these, and, and what's, what are the issues he sees, and are these paragraphs directed at a specific group within the church? Because no matter how you read Romans, you have to notice one thing. When you get to chapters five through eight, something is missing. And what's missing? Well, what's missing is all of these Old Testament references that have that packed 12 through 16, that packed uh, f- um, one through four and, and five through seven. And, and so, one through four. So when you get the five, they, they stop. So maybe now his attention is drawn more towards those who don't know the Old Testament so well. Maybe now he's directed more toward the strong than the weak. The weak, they're Jewish believers. They're in the stream of God's election. God chose them, they know that. And because of that election, they they need to be encouraged because they have some doubts. They've got some questions about God's faithfulness. Especially since Jesus has come, you know, what's going on? We can't, we can, they're eating pork now. What's with this? And they embrace, can they embrace these surprising moves of God throughout the history of Israel, and especially with the birth of the church? They're sitting in judgment on the Gentile believers who are the strong. They believe Jesus is Messiah, but they're not following the Torah, the Old Testament as the way to God. Romans was written because of this tension within these two groups. And it's reading Romans, understanding that tension that that it kind of opens up for us, and we can understand what, what Paul is trying to apply to our lives. And in our section, Romans 5 through 8, Paul is tracing the story of Adam and sin and sinfulness, and he's tracing that story to Jesus and basically cosmic worldwide redemption. And in Romans 5 through 8, he uses four different pronouns, kind of obviously in that text. There's all, there's you, there's we, and there's I. Of course, I'm not sure there are any more pronouns than that. But these passages they, they, there's the we passages, there's the you passages, there's the all passages, and then there's Romans 7, which is I. All right? And as you look at these passages, underneath you understand he's telling a story. And he's telling it to a certain group of people. But it's the story about sin and obedience. It's a story about death and life, life eternal. It's a story about creation that was enslaved and creation that's now liberated. It's a story about how best to live the Christian life with the freedom of being redeemed, with the freedom that moral transformation brings. It's the story of how to solve the tension They were facing in these house churches in Rome. And if you're among the weak, your answer to all of that is more Torah. You got to do the the Old Testament. You got to keep the law, you got to get circumcised, you got to do these things. For Paul, the answer is all grace, more spirit, and the result The result, ironically, is kind of the same thing. They end up at the same place. But the question in Rome is, how do we get there? Paul opposes this judge of Romans 2, who thinks they're going to get there through more Torah. Romans 8 is where they're headed. Verse 1, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us, who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Not according to the Torah, but according to the Spirit. Because you see, Paul's point is God's ability to clean things up is infinitely greater than our ability to mess things up. But how does he do that? How are the strong and the weak going to be reconciled? More law or more grace? The solution has to be found somewhere besides in the law. Because as he begins to talk to the strong... They don't really understand what a genuine lived theology is all about. They either flout their non Torah lifestyle, we don't have to do all that stuff you're doing, you shouldn't either, or they presume upon grace and they just live as ever they want to live. They seem to be rather hard headed when it comes to the scruples of the weak, they're status driven, they're insensitive. They tend to bully the weak. And that has to get transformed too if there's going to be unity in the church. And the weak just stand up and say more Torah and Paul says, we need more spirit. So this morning we're going to tackle the you, we sections. The honest truth is time this week has been at a premium. And, and I really wanted to go through and pick out all these we, you, I, I trace it all through. It's much more than I can handle in my little brain. So we're going to look at one section of the you, we part. Okay, it's Romans 6, and we're going to look at the first 14 verses. Because as you take it as a whole, the you and the we sections, they summarize, how do we get to Romans 8 the correct way? How do you solve this tension? Well, Paul says God offers a relationship based on pure grace, grace, not law. So let's look at Romans 6, if you have your Bibles there. We're going to look at that, those first 14 verses, because I think the implication is, and, and the tone that he's setting, is that if we understand the implications of grace, we do that, and, 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 and we can change lives, and we can change the, the dynamic of a church by teaching three things, a fact, a calculation, and a decision. You've got to know something, you've got to calculate something, and you've got to decide something. Because grace changes everything, not the law, grace. So let's explore the, the, the difference that this way of Christ as opposed to the way of Adam makes in our lives. Here's God's prescription for unity in the church. Step one, they aren't really steps. That was a holdover from Friday morning. You know what happens on Saturday. So, but it's, it's in the notes, so we'll stick with it. Step one, the fact. I died to sin. He says you've got to know some things. And what you've got to know is, I died to sin. If you're going to experience peace and harmony in the church, you have to experience peace and harmony. You've got to know something, and that is, I died to sin. See, the living the Christian life, it's always dependent on you learning something, on discipleship. That's why we have the class system to grow in grace with some logical steps, And Ephesians, Romans 6 tells us what you need to know. You need to know what you were, what you are, and what you now have. So these things you need to know, these facts, A, what you were, Romans 6, 2. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore baptized with him we were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may have a new life. We've learned four things in that text. We've been crucified with Christ. We've been buried with Christ. We've been raised with Christ. We're united with Christ. How many people were crucified at Calvary? Well, you know, If you said three from a historical viewpoint, you'd be correct. Theologically, there were a lot more than three. There were all of us there. And they're telling us, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you were there that day because you died with him. And the cross of Jesus Christ is an event which transcends time. It's an event so important that it has implications that begin before the universe was even created until our lives today and into the future. Your spiritual history begins at the cross. You died with him. You were buried with him. You were raised from the dead, and therefore, you're united with him. And all of that is symbolized in the act of a a believer's baptism. And baptism, though the word means to immerse or to dip into It has symbolic meaning, and it's wrapped around this concept of identification. We are identified with Christ. When you're baptized, you publicly identify with him. And baptism is the point at which you publicly say, I am identifying myself with Jesus Christ. This is what happened to me when he died, and he was buried, and he was risen again. It happened 2,000 years ago, but you know, I'm saying yes, and I'm identifying so that it happened to me. That's what you were. Be what you are. And notice what Paul says as he opens the discussion. He says, Paul, he says, we died to sin. He sees us as dead, buried, and resurrected. And united so tightly that we couldn't be separated from him. And that's the basis of peace and unity in the church. But he draws two conclusions. He says, we're dead to sin In verse 2, and then he says in verse 7, we're freed from sin. Verse 2, we died to sin. Verse 7, anyone who has died is freed from sin. Huh. What does it mean to die to sin? What does it mean that we're dead to sin? Well, it doesn't mean sinless perfection, obviously. You're never going to get to the place where we don't sin anymore doesn't happen it doesn't mean that our sin nature is gone you know our old man is, is that inclination towards sin and it wants to fight us and we feel that it doesn't mean that we're freed from temptation to sin you're dead to sin but sin's not dead to you it doesn't mean just blah 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 theology It's not gibberish. It has to mean something. When he died, we died. So what does it mean when he says we are dead to sin? I think it means we are dead to the power of sin. The penalty of sin is what sends us to hell if we don't know Christ as Savior. We understand that. We understand the concept of the penalty of sin. Do we understand the concept of the power of sin? it too has been eliminated. Therefore, if that's true, then you have a choice to make. You're always at a fork in the road facing some alluring temptation. It may have defeated you many times before. Maybe it's a person, and you meet that person who always makes you, you know, whatever, not good. Do you believe that that person or that temptation has power over you? Do you believe that you're going to fail again just because you always fail? Or will you begin to accept by faith that because of your union with Christ, the power of sin has been broken in your life? Do you believe that you even can choose victory? You don't always have to sin just because you've always sinned. That's a lie. Paul says the power of sin has been broken in your life. If you go to the zoo, the lion is behind the bars. You're safe. The lion can roar all he wants to do. Unless you do something stupid like crawling into the cage, you're safe. As long as you understand that the power of sin is broken, sin cannot dominate your life unless you choose to let sin dominate your life. See, what do you have then? You have two things. In verse 4, you have a brand new life. And in verse 5 and in 8 through 10, you have a resurrection life. 8 through 10 says this, Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. God did what he did for us so that what? Verse 4, we too may live a new life word new is very interesting. It's not just the, your normal word new. It, it really has the, the understanding of a new, different, of a different kind. It's not new in the sense of better. God didn't save you to give you a better life. He saved you to give you a new life. He didn't save you to renovate your old messed up life. He saved you to give you a brand new life of a different kind, Salvation is not reformation, it's not renovation, it's the impartation of the divine life of God. That's what we have. You have something now that you've never had before. And what is it you have? You have the resurrection life of Jesus Christ. Verse 5 for we have been united with him in death, in a death like his. We will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like him. You have the resurrection life of Christ within you. It's a fact. It may not always feel like it. But that's not what the word says. The word says this is true. It doesn't matter how we feel. We're going to go up and down emotionally. But if you're a believer, then God has given you a brand new life. He has given you the resurrection life of Jesus Christ. And true spirituality begins with a proper understanding, what has God done for me? What did, you have to know what God did at the moment of your salvation. You've got a brand new life. You've got to transform and you've been transferred from the kingdom of Satan into the kingdom of God. But how do you make that real? How does that work in the church? How does it work in my life? That's step two, the calculation. The calculation. I have to choose to change. I choose then to change. Romans 6, 11, in the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. You have to count that everything Paul has just said is true in your life. Dead to sin, but alive to God. It's a summary of what he said in the first 10 verses. If you don't understand all this stuff about baptism and the old man and being dead to sin, focus on one truth that he says, dead to sin, but alive to God. You are dead to sin now through Jesus Christ, and you're alive to God through him. To count, to reckon, if you like the King James verse, verse, version, it means you put $1,000 in your checking account. Then you go to write a $500 check, you don't worry about the money not being there because you put it in there. It's reckoned, it's calculated, it's in your account. So so to calculate means to count on the fact that God has done what he said he would do. This is what God said is true about us. Do we believe that? It means I have to count on the fact that because God said it and he meant it, it's true. It means to live based on the fact that God wasn't kidding when he said, you're dead to sin, and now you're alive to me. You don't have to work yourself up into some emotional tizzy and, oh, I can do this, I can do this. You don't have to pretend that something's true when you know it's not. It's believing that what God said he would do, he really would do. Therefore, it's true. You can depend on it. You can build your life upon it. It's an actual fact. And what does that mean for us spiritually? It means that everybody by nature is born into the kingdom of Satan. We are a son of Adam. We were born into that realm, and you live there until you come to Christ. And when you say yes to Jesus, you're transferred from that kingdom, the line of Adam, to the line of Christ. You have a new king, you have a new master, you have a new lord, you have a new citizenship. You have a new way of looking at things that you've never seen before. You've got new boundaries for your conduct. You've changed, you've been transferred. You were living one way and now you're living another. And to calculate means to count on the fact that those things are actually true. The whole story of your life can be divided into two parts, B.C. and A.D., before Christ and after deliverance. And to calculate means we understand that our lives are have have a before and an after. And living in the after, it can be hard to do. Several years ago, someone came into my office. That many, not that many years ago, came into my office. He was quite distressed, and he was ba- he, he was even in tears. He said, "I am going to be deported." He has an accent, so I knew. You know, I mean, he wasn't born here. He says, I'm going to be deported. And I said, what? Why would anybody deport you? He says, well, that's what they're doing to all foreign nationals. I said, aren't you a citizen? He said, yes. I said, well, don't you have a passport? Yes. What's on the front of the passport? He was afraid they were going to deport him just because he was born outside the country. And I said, <laughs> well, that wow, would, that would be huge if they could do that because basically none of us would be here you can't be deported because you have all the rights and privileges of a natural born citizen that's the way it works see life after citizenship is very very different but you have to calculate that to be true or you're going to have all kinds of issues in your life so how do i change how do i i got this problem And and okay, I know this and I'm calculating it, but what do I do? How do I change? How do I daily walk with Christ in the face of sin? Here's a story that might help. Day one, I went for a walk down the street. I fell into a hole. I didn't see it. It took me a long time to get out. It's not my fault. Day two, I went for a walk down the same street. I fell into the same hole. It took me a long time to get out. (laughs) Why did I do that? Day three, I went for a walk down the same street. I fell into the same hole. Oh, but I got out quickly. It's my fault. Day four, I went for a walk down the same street. I saw the hole and I walked around it. Day five, and there's only five days. (laughs) I went for a walk down a different street. (laughs) I can't handle it when I go down that street. Every time I go down that street, I feel something sucking me down into that hole. I'm not going down that street anymore. I don't like what happens on that street. And when I get there, I can't handle it. I don't want sin to reign in my body so I'm not going down that street anymore. You see, walking with God is really a decision that you have to make moment by moment, day by day. You have to choose it. You can't live the way you used to live because you're not the person who you used to be. You've been changed, you've been transformed. Your citizenship, it's now transferred in the kingdom of the Son. And so now what we, what we know about ourselves, we have to apply to ourselves. We've got to make those choices. You're going to have to make a series of very small decisions which will change your life and your relationships. It'll change even the relationships in church. You've got to, step two, you've got to, to make the calculation and decide it's time to choose. Step three, the decision that you need to make naturally. Verse 12, it's, I'm dead to that, we'll get to that in a sec. Verse 12, therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies. Do not let sin reign in your mortal body so you obey its evil desires. Do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and offer the parts of your body to him as instruments of righteousness. For sin shall not be your master, because you are not under law, but under grace. Know the fact that I've died to sin. Calculate that I can choose to make a change. And then you've got to make a decision. I'm dead to that. I'm dead to it. We discover that even though our conversion has taken us out of the old reality and the line of Adam, into this new reality, we still have this mortal body. The heart is still evil. And this mortal body groans and strains to be made compatible with the new reality we've been introduced to. So we have a new way to live. And Jesus is saying... This is the Gospel of Matthew. You can't put new wine into old wineskins. That's what's going on here. You cannot go back and live Torah only. There's got to be a new way to live. And because we struggle with the the habits and the patterns that we've deeply ingrained into our lives, that, that when we live, it just feels like a natural reflex to sin. But those reflexes instinctively revert back to the old way of living. And we're constantly tempted to go that way, but you got to make a choice. Be honest, we don't usually struggle with those tendencies to go back to the old way of life while we're sitting in church. It's all nice in here. Go to the parking lot, they're back. We struggle. To do what God wants us to do when we're just going through the ordinary day of life, driving a car, talking to our spouse, spending our money, playing softball, all of that, that's when we're going to struggle. It's when God asks us to get along with the weak, or when God says, you know, you've got to love the strong. It's that. It's then when we struggle. And Paul's solution, he says it negatively and positively. He says, don't offer and offer. Don't offer what? The parts of your body. What are the parts of your body? Well, let's see. I don't know. You got hands. You got fingers and eyes and lips and ears and legs and feet and toes and everything. Very specific, parts of the body. Don't offer those, he says, as weapons of righteousness or instruments of of wickedness. Instead, offer them to God. See, living under Adam, we were used to using our bodies and offering our bodies to serve who? Us, ourselves. Now you got a new way of living, and you know what? It involves all the little parts of your body. Shall we talk about your eyes? Have you been looking at things you shouldn't have been looking at this week? Should we talk about your ears? Have you been listening to things you shouldn't have been listening to this week? Gossip, slander, whatever. Should we talk about your lips? What have you been saying? Are your lips offered to God? What about your hands? Just using to get the world's stuff. What about your feet? Are they taking you places where they shouldn't be taking you? What about the most intimate parts of your body? Are those offered to God, or are you using them for evil? You see, to be more like Jesus, it isn't going to happen until you make it very personal. Paul's clear in Romans 6.12, Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body. The body. How do you do that? Well, how do you win that battle? You make a decision. make a choice at the point of temptation. Verse 611 says, count yourself. Assess the facts. Calculate the importance. Consider yourself to be dead to sin. And if you're tired of your old pattern of behavior and the pain it causes and the guilt that it's eventually going to rot in your life, Then you have to make a choice. And you have to speak four words to yourselves. One's a contraction. I don't know how you count the words. Four words. I'm dead to that. Say it. I'm dead to that. I don't do this very often, but I'm dead to that. I'm dead to that. I'm dead to that. Say them out loud. You honor God at the point of the temptation. In the late 1800s, the residents of Niagara Falls, they wanted to build a suspension bridge over the gorge. They didn't know what to do. None of the engineers could come up with a solution, so they had a contest. The winning entry said, fly a kite over the gorge when the wind is right and take the string that gets over to the other side, attach to the other end of it a rope, pull the rope across, and then tie a cord, and then a cable. And they would eventually build a wooden structure, which became the Niagara Bridge for railroad construction, or uh, traffic. They have since replaced that bridge, it was wooden, so it didn't last forever, with a concrete and modern design. But the strength and the power began with a kite string. And you say, you know, if you just say I'm dead to that, it's not going to do it. It might feel like a little kite string across a mighty river. It may seem flimsy when facing the pattern of sinfulness in your life that's held you for so long, but you have to begin somewhere. And you have to begin to express in faith those words at the point of temptation. I'm dead to that. But step back and think. What Paul is saying in Romans 6 is the agent of change in our lives is what? It isn't making people follow the law out of rote obedience. It's grace. It's the Spirit. It's learning to walk with Christ. Grace doesn't give us an excuse to sin. It doesn't give us license to live any old way we want to. If you think that, you've really misunderstood the whole concept of grace. Grace just means we've passed from one reality to another, from one kingdom to another, from one master to another. And that was not accomplished by obeying the law. Torah observance didn't do that. It's grace that changes us. Because when we encounter it, we die to the old way of life in Adam, and we're introduced to a brand new way to live in Christ. God's grace, it changes us. We need to know the fact that I died to sin. We need to calculate and decide I'm going to choose to change, and I'm going to make a decision. I'm dead to that. You see, grace teaches us a fact. It forces us to make a calculation followed by a decision. That's the only way the weak and the strong in these house churches that they were going to find harmony as each of them realized we're dead to sin. We're choosing to change, and we're dead to that. You see, sin's power over us, in that moment is broken. You've got to yield the individual parts of your body. In service to Jesus Christ, when your lips become his, when your eyes become his, when your ears and your hands become his, and your feet then will be his, because then wherever you go, you'll be a testimony of his grace and you will live that out. God has made change possible you got to be serious, you've got to yield the parts of your body. You have to live out what you believe, you need to become like Christ. And then we will know that lasting, true spiritual transformation. And if you do it right, Christianity should feel like what? I can finally breathe, not, I haven't done enough. Horace says, I haven't done enough. Grace says, I can finally breathe. That's how we walk with Christ. There are two ways to get to Romans 8. There is therefore now no condemnation. There is the way of the Spirit. There is the way of grace, and there's the way of law. But we as believers, we can finally breathe let us pray. Father, thank you today for your word. Some of us want to talk about victory, but we don't want to talk, you don't want the preacher meddling with our hands and our feet and our lips and our eyes. But we need to be specific and definitive and decisive that we might offer to you all that we are and have that we might be a minister of your healing grace in a world in need of a Savior. In Jesus' name, amen.